the Conference Center Theater in Salt Lake City, Utah, this is the Saturday morning session of the 190th Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music for this session is provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Henry B. Eyring, second counselor in the first presidency of the church, will conduct this session. Brothers and sisters, we welcome you to the Saturday morning session of the 190th Semiannual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and extend a warm welcome to members and friends participating in the conference throughout the world, wherever you may be. We are deeply grateful for the technology which allows us to meet together once again. President Russell M. Nelson, who presides at the conference, has asked me to conduct this session, which is originating from the Conference Center Theater in Salt Lake City, Utah. We acknowledge members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles who are seated on the rostrum this morning. The music for this session will be provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. The selections have been previously recorded and will be under the direction of various conductors and organists. The choir opened this meeting with Truth Eternal and will now favor us with Praise to the Lord the Almighty. The invocation will then be offered by Elder Patrick Kieran, Senior President of the Seventy, after which the choir will sing, I Feel My Savior's Love.
Our dear Father in heaven, we gratefully gather at the opening of this worldwide conference to rejoice in the life, ministry, and atoning gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for all of those who are unwell in body, mind, or spirit, and for those who grieve. We ask thee to bless any in need who are watching or listening to this conference, particularly those who feel marginalized or lost. We plead for healing, peace, and comfort to settle upon them. We seek thy blessing upon all those who are sick or suffering as a result of the COVID virus and for those working to defeat it. We ask for guidance for leaders of nations and peoples around the world as we yearn for a return to grace, dignity, and civility in, pub in public life. We pray for all of those who will speak during this conference. We humbly acknowledge that the gospel of Jesus Christ, joyfully lived, is the answer to all ills, and offer this prayer with thanksgiving in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
It will now be our privilege to hear from our beloved Prophet President Russell M. Nelson. He will be followed by Elder David A. Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and Elder Scott D. Whiting of the Seventy, Sister Michelle D. Craig, First Counselor in the Young Women General Presidency, will then address us. My dear brothers and sisters, what a joy it is to be with you as we begin the 190th Semiannual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I love joining with you in your homes or wherever you are to listen together to the messages of prophets, seers, and revelators and other church leaders. How grateful we are for the technology that allows us to be connected as one great worldwide gathering of disciples of Jesus Christ. General Conference last April was viewed by more people than any preceding it, and we have every expectation that will happen again. During the past few months, a global pandemic, raging wildfires, and other natural disasters have turned our world upside down. I grieve with each of you who has lost a loved one during this time. And I pray for all who are currently suffering. Meanwhile, the work of the Lord is steadily moving forward amid social distancing, face masks, and Zoom meetings. We've learned to do some things differently and some even more effectively. Unusual times can bring unusual rewards. Our missionaries and mission leaders have been resourceful, resilient, and truly remarkable. Although most missionaries have had to find new, creative ways to do their work, many missions have reported doing more teaching than ever. We had to close temples for a time, and some construction projects were briefly delayed but now they are all moving forward. In the calendar year 2020, we will have broken ground for 20 new temples. Family history work has increased exponentially. Many new wards and stakes have been created. And we are gratified to report that the church has provided pandemic humanitarian aid for 895 projects in 150 countries. Increased gospel study in many homes is resulting in stronger testimonies and family relationships. One mother wrote, we feel much closer to our children and grandchildren now that we gather on Zoom every Sunday. Each takes a turn giving their thoughts on come, follow me. Prayers for our family members have changed because we better understand what they need. I pray that we as a people are using this unique time to grow spiritually. 
We are here on earth to be tested, to see if we will choose to follow Jesus Christ, to repent regularly, to learn and to progress. Our spirits long to progress, and we do that best by staying firmly on the covenant path. Through it all, our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, love us. They care for us. They and their holy angels are watching over us. I know that is true. As we gather to hear the words the Lord has inspired His servants to deliver, I invite you to ponder a promise the Lord made. He declared that whosoever will may lay hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder all the cunning and the wiles of the devil and lead the disciple of Christ in a straight and narrow course. I pray that you will choose to lay hold upon the word of God as it is declared during this general conference. And I pray that you may feel the Lord's perfect love for you. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. I pray for the assistance of the Holy Ghost for all of us as I share the thoughts and feelings that have come to my mind and heart in preparation for this general conference. For more than two decades before my call to full-time church service, I worked as a university teacher and administrator. My primary responsibility as a teacher was to help students learn how to learn for themselves. And a vital element of my work was creating, grading, and providing feedback about student performance on tests. As you may already know from personal experience, tests typically are not the part of the learning process that students like the most. But periodic tests absolutely are essential to learning. An effective test helps us to compare what we need to know with what we actually know about a specific subject. It also provides a standard against which we can evaluate our learning and development. Likewise, tests in the school of mortality are a vital element of our eternal progression. Interestingly, however, the word test is not found even one time in the scriptural text of the standard works in English. Rather, words such as prove, examine, and try are used to describe various patterns of demonstrating appropriately our spiritual knowledge about, understanding of, and devotion to our Heavenly Father's eternal plan of happiness and our capacity to seek for the blessings of the Savior's atonement. He who authored the plan of salvation described the very purpose of our mortal probation using the words prove, examine, and try in ancient and modern scripture. And we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. Consider this pleading by the psalmist to David. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. And the Lord declared in 1833, 
Therefore be not afraid of your enemies, for I have decreed in my heart, saith the Lord, that I will prove you in all things, whether you will abide in my covenant even unto death, that you may be found worthy. The year 2020 has been marked in part by a global pandemic that has proved, examined, and tried us in many ways. I pray that we as individuals and families are learning the valuable lessons that only challenging experiences can teach us. I also hope that all of us will more fully acknowledge the greatness of God and the truth that He shall consecrate our afflictions for our gain. Two basic principles can guide and strengthen us as we face proving and trying circumstances in our lives, whatever they may be. First, the principle of preparation, and second, the principle of pressing forward with a steadfastness in Christ. First, preparation. As disciples of the Savior, we are commanded to prepare every needful thing and establish a house even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. We also are promised that if ye are prepared, ye shall not fear, and that ye might escape the power of the enemy and be gathered unto me a righteous people without spot and blameless. These scriptures provide a perfect framework for organizing and preparing our lives and homes both temporally and spiritually. Our efforts to prepare for the proving experiences of mortality should follow the example of the Savior, who incrementally increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, a blended balance of intellectual, physical, spiritual, and social readiness. On an afternoon a few months ago, Susan and I inventoried our food storage and emergency supplies. At the time, COVID-19 was spreading rapidly, and a series of earthquakes had jolted our home in Utah. We have worked since the earliest days of our marriage to follow prophetic counsel about preparing for unforeseen challenges. So examining our state of readiness in the midst of the virus and earthquakes seemed like a good and timely thing to do. We wanted to find out our grades on these unannounced tests. We learned a great deal. In many areas, our preparatory work was just right. In some other areas, however, improvement was necessary because we had not recognized and addressed particular needs in a timely way. We also laughed a lot. We discovered, for example, items in a remote closet that had been in our food storage for decades. Frankly, we were afraid to open and inspect some of the containers for fear of unleashing another global pandemic. But you should be happy to know that we properly disposed of the hazardous materials and that health risk to the world was eliminated. Some church members opine that emergency plans and supplies, food storage, And 72-hour kits must not be important anymore because the brethren have not spoken recently and extensively about these and related topics in general conference. But repeated admonitions to prepare have been proclaimed by leaders of the Church for decades. 
The consistency of prophetic counsel over time creates a powerful concert of clarity and a warning volume far louder than solo performances can ever produce. Just as challenging times reveal inadequacies in a temporal preparedness, so too the maladies of spiritual casualness and complacency inflict their most detrimental effects during difficult times. We learn, for example, in the parable of the ten virgins that procrastinating preparation leads to unsuccessful proving. Recall how the five foolish virgins failed to prepare appropriately for the examination given to them on the day of the bridegroom's coming. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, ye know me not. At least on this exam, the five foolish virgins proved themselves to be hearers only and not doers of the word. I have a friend who was a conscientious student in law school. During the course of a semester, Sam invested time every day to review, summarize, and learn from his notes for each course in which he was enrolled. He followed the same pattern for all of his classes at the end of every week and every month. His approach enabled him to learn the law and not merely memorize details. And as final examinations approached, Sam was prepared. In fact, he found the final exam period to be one of the least stressful parts of his legal training. Effective and timely preparation precedes successful proving. Sam's approach to his legal education highlights one of the Lord's primary patterns for growth and development. Thus saith the Lord God, I will give unto the children of men, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear unto my counsel. For they shall learn wisdom, for unto him that receiveth I will give more. I invite each of us to consider our ways and examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith and prove our own selves. What have we learned during these recent months of lifestyle adjustments and restrictions? What do we need to improve in our lives spiritually, physically, socially, emotionally, and intellectually? Now is the time to prepare and prove ourselves willing and able to do all things whatsoever the Lord our God shall command us. Second, pressing forward. I once attended a funeral for a young missionary who was killed in an accident. 
The missionary's father spoke in the service and described the heartache of an unexpected mortal separation from a beloved child. He forthrightly declared that he personally did not understand the reasons or timing for such an event. But I always will remember this good man also declaring that he knew God knew the reasons and timing for the passing of his child, and that was good enough for him. He told the congregation that he and his family, though sorrowful, would be fine. Their testimonies remained firm and steadfast. He concluded his remarks with this declaration. I want you to know that as far as the gospel of Jesus Christ is concerned, our family is all in. We are all in. Though the loss of a dear loved one was heart-wrenching and difficult, the members of this valiant family spiritually were prepared to prove that they could learn lessons of eternal importance through the things that they suffered. Faithfulness is not foolishness or fanaticism. Rather, it is trusting and placing our confidence in Jesus Christ as our Savior, on His name, and in His promises. As we press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope, and a love of God and of all men, we are blessed with an eternal perspective and vision that stretches far beyond our limited mortal capacity. We will be enabled to gather together and stand in holy places and be not moved until the day of the Lord come. While I was serving as the president of Brigham Young University, Idaho, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland came to the campus in December of 1998 to speak in one of our weekly devotionals. Susan and I invited a group of students to meet and visit with Elder Holland before he delivered his message. As our time together was drawing to a close, I asked Elder Holland, If you could teach these students just one thing, what would it be? He answered, quote, We are witnessing an ever greater movement toward polarity. The middle ground options will be removed from us as Latter-day Saints. The middle of the road will be withdrawn. If you are treading water in the current of a river, you will go somewhere. You simply will go wherever the current takes you. Going with the stream, following the tide, drifting in the current will not do. Choices have to be made. Not making a choice is a choice. Learn to choose now. Close quote. Elder Holland's statement about increasing polarization has been proven prophetic by the societal trends and events of the 22 years since he answered my question. Foretelling the widening divergence between the ways of the Lord and of the world, Elder Holland warned that the days of comfortably having one foot in the restored church and one foot in the world were vanishing quickly. This servant of the Lord was encouraging the young people to choose, prepare, and become devoted disciples of the Savior. He was helping them to prepare and then press forward to and through the proving, examining, and trying experiences of their lives. The process of proving ourselves is a fundamental part of Heavenly Father's great plan of happiness. I promise that as we both prepare 
and press forward with faith in the Savior, we all can receive the same grade on the ultimate examination of mortality. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. I witness that God the Eternal Father is our Father. Jesus Christ is his only begotten and living Son, our Savior and Redeemer. Of these truths I joyfully testify in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To even the careful student of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the Savior's admonition to be even as I am is daunting and seemingly unattainable. Perhaps you are like me, all too aware of your faults and failings, so you may find it mentally more comfortable to walk a path with no upward incline and little growth. Surely this teaching is unrealistic and hyperbole, we rationalize, as we comfortably choose the course of least resistance thereby burning fewer calories of needed change. But what if becoming even as he is is not figurative even in our mortal condition? What if it is to some degree attainable in this life and indeed a prerequisite to being with him again? What if even as I am is exactly and precisely what is meant by the Savior? Then what? What level of effort? would we be willing to give to invite his miraculous power into our lives so that we can change our very nature? Elder Neil A. Maxwell taught, quote, As we ponder, having been commanded by Jesus to become like him, we see that our present circumstance is one in which we are not necessarily wicked, but rather is one in which we are so half-hearted and so lacking in enthusiasm for his cause, which is our cause too. We extol, but seldom emulate him, end quote. A young minister, Charles M. Sheldon, expressed similar sentiments this way, quote, Our Christianity loves its ease and comfort too well to take up anything so rough and heavy as a cross, end quote. In fact, all are under the directive to become like him, just as Jesus Christ became like the Father, As we progress, we become more complete, finished, and fully developed. Such teaching is not based on any one sect's doctrines, but come directly from the Master himself. It is through this lens that lives should be lived, communications considered, and relationships fostered. Truly, there is no other way to heal the wounds of broken relationships or of a fractured society than for each of us to more fully emulate the Prince of Peace. Let's consider how to begin a thoughtful, deliberate, and intentional pursuit of becoming as he is by gaining the very attributes of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, my wife and I stood at the trailhead of Japan's highest mountain, Mount Fuji. As we began our ascent, we looked up to this far distant summit and wondered if we could get there. As we progressed, fatigue, sore muscles, and the effects of altitude set in. Mentally, it became important for us to focus on just the next step. We would say, I may not soon make it to the top, but I can do this next step right now. Over time, the daunting task ultimately became achievable step by step. 
The first step on this path to becoming like Jesus Christ is to have the desire to do so. Understanding the admonition to be like him is good, but that understanding needs to be coupled with a yearning to transform ourselves one step at a time beyond the natural man. To develop the desire, we must know who he is. We must know something of his character, and we must look for his attributes in scripture, worship services, and other holy places. As we begin to know more of him, we will see his attributes reflected in others. This will encourage us on our own quest, for if others can attain in some measure his attributes, so can we. If we are honest with ourselves, the light of Christ within us whispers that there is distance between where we are in comparison with the desired character of the Savior. Such honesty is vital if we are to progress in becoming like him. Indeed, honesty is one of his attributes. Now, those of us who are brave might consider asking a trusted family member, spouse, friend, or spiritual leader what attribute of Jesus Christ we are in need of. And we may need to brace ourselves for the response. Sometimes we see ourselves with distorted funhouse mirrors that show us either much more round or much more lean than we really are. Trusted friends and family can help us see ourselves more accurately. But even they, as loving and helpful as they would like to be, can see things imperfectly. As a result, it is vital that we ask our loving Heavenly Father what we are in need of and where we should focus our efforts. He has a perfect view of us and will lovingly show us our weakness. Perhaps you will learn that you need greater patience, humility, charity, love, hope, diligence, or obedience, to name a few. Not long ago, I had a soul-stretching experience when a loving church leader made a very direct suggestion that I could use a greater measure of a certain attribute. He lovingly cut through any distortion. That night, I shared this experience with my wife. She was mercifully charitable, even as she agreed with his suggestion. The Holy Ghost confirmed to me that their counsel was from a loving Heavenly Father. It may also be helpful to honestly complete the Christ-like attribute activity in chapter 6 of Preach My Gospel. Once you have made an assessment, an honest assessment, and resolved to start the hike up the mountain, you will need to repent. President Russell M. Nelson lovingly taught, quote, When we choose to repent, we choose to change. We allow the Savior to transform us into the best version of ourselves. We choose to grow spiritually and receive joy, the joy of redemption in him. When we choose to repent, we choose to become more like Jesus Christ, end quote. Becoming as Jesus Christ is will require changing our hearts and minds, indeed our very character, and doing so is possible only through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Now that you have resolved to change and repent and have sought guidance through prayer, pondering honestly and possibly counseling with others, you will need to select an attribute that will keenly become your focus. You will need to commit to exerting meaningful effort. These attributes won't come cheaply and suddenly, but through his grace they will come incrementally while endeavoring. Christ-like attributes are gifts from a loving Heavenly Father to bless us and those around us. Accordingly, all efforts to obtain these attributes will require heartfelt pleas for his divine assistance. 
If we seek these gifts to better serve others, he will bless us in our efforts. Selfishly pursuing a gift from God will end in disappointment and frustration. By focusing deeply on one needed attribute, as you progress in obtaining that attribute, other attributes begin to accrue to you. Cannot someone who is focusing deeply on charity not increase in love and humility? Cannot someone who is focusing on obedience not gain greater diligence and hope? Your significant efforts to gain one attribute become the tide that raises all boats in the harbor. It is important for me as I strive to become like him to record my experiences and what I'm learning. As I study with one of his attributes deep in my mind, the scriptures become new. As I see examples of the, this attribute in his teachings, his ministry, and his disciples, my eye becomes more focused on recognizing the attribute in others. I have observed wonderful individuals both within and without the church who have attributes that emulate him. They are powerful examples of how those attributes can be manifest in mere mortals through his loving grace. In order to see real progress, you will need to put in sustained effort. Much like climbing a mountain requires preparation before and endurance and perseverance during ascent, so too will this journey require real effort and sacrifice. True Christianity, in which we strive to become like our master, has always required our best efforts. Now a brief word of caution. The commandment to be like him is not intended to make you feel guilty unworthy or unloved. Our entire mortal experience is about progression, trying, failing, and succeeding. As much as my wife and I may have wished that we could close our eyes and magically transport ourselves to the summit, that is not what life is about. You are good enough. You are loved. But that does not mean that you are yet complete. There is work to be done in this life and the next. Only with his divine help can we progress toward becoming like him. In these times when all things appear to be in commotion and fear is seemingly upon all people, the only antidote, the only remedy, is to strive to be like the Savior, the Redeemer of all mankind, the light of the world, and to seek after he who declared, I am the way. I know that becoming like him through his divine help and strength is achievable step by step. If not so, he would not have given us this commandment. I know this in part because I see attributes of him in so many of you. Of these things I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 I love the Old Testament story of a young man who served the prophet Elisha. Early one morning, the young man woke up, went outside, and found the city surrounded by a great army intent on destroying them. He ran to Elisha. Alas, my master, how shall we do? Elisha answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Elisha knew the young man needed more than calming reassurance. He needed vision. And so Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. There may be times when you, like the servant, 
find yourself struggling to see how God is working in your life. Times when you feel under siege. When the trials of mortality bring you to your knees. Wait and trust in God and in his timing. Because you can trust his heart with all of yours. But there is a second lesson here. My dear sisters and brothers, you too can pray for the Lord to open your eyes to see things you would not normally see. Perhaps the most important things for us to see clearly are who God is and who we really are. Sons and daughters of heavenly parents with a divine nature and eternal destiny. Ask God to reveal these truths to you along with how he feels about you. The more you understand your true identity and purpose soul deep, the more it will influence everything in your life. Understanding how God sees us prepares the way to help us see others as he does. Columnist David Brooks said, quote, Many of our society's great problems flow from people not feeling seen and known. There is a core trait that we all have to get better at, and that is the trait of seeing each other deeply and being deeply seen, end quote. Jesus Christ sees people deeply. He sees individuals, their needs, and who they can become. Where others saw fishermen, sinners, or publicans, Jesus saw disciples. Where others saw a man possessed by devils, Jesus looked past the outward distress, acknowledged him, and healed him. Even in our busy lives, we can follow the example of Jesus and see individuals, their needs, their faith, their struggle, and who they can become. As I pray for the Lord to open my eyes to see things I might not normally see, I often ask myself two questions and pay attention to the impressions that come. What am I doing that I should stop doing? And what am I not doing that I should start doing? Months ago during the sacrament, I asked myself these questions and was surprised by the answer that came. Stop looking at your phone when you are waiting in lines. Looking at my phone in lines had become almost automatic. I found it a good time to multitask, to catch up on email, look at headlines, or scroll through a social media feed. The next morning, I found myself waiting in a long line at the store. I pulled out my phone and then remembered the impression I had received. I put my phone away and looked around. I saw an elderly gentleman in line ahead of me. His cart was empty except for a few cans of cat food. I felt a little awkward, but I said something really clever like, I can see you have a cat. He said that a storm was coming and he did not want to be caught without cat food. We visited briefly and then he turned to me and said, You know, I haven't told anyone this, but today is my birthday. My heart melted. I wished him a happy birthday and offered a silent prayer of thanks that I had not been on my phone and missed an opportunity to truly see and connect with another person who needed it. With all of my heart, I do not want to be like the priest or the Levite on the road to Jericho, one who looks and passes by, but too often I think I am. 
I recently learned a valuable lesson about seeing deeply from a young woman named Rosalind. The story was shared with me by my friend who was devastated when her husband of 20 years moved out. With her children splitting time between parents, the prospect of attending church alone seemed daunting. She recounts, In a church where the family is of paramount importance, sitting solo can be painful. That first Sunday I walked in praying no one would speak to me. I was barely holding it together and tears were on the brink. I sat in my typical spot hoping no one would notice how empty the bench seemed. A young woman in our ward turned and looked at me. I pretended to smile. She smiled back. I could see the concern in her face. I silently pleaded that she wouldn't come talk to me. I had nothing positive to say and knew I would cry. I looked back down at my lap and avoided eye contact. During the next hour, I noticed her looking back at me occasionally. As soon as the meeting ended, she made a beeline for me. Hi, Rosalind, I whispered. She wrapped me in her arms and said, Sister Smith, I can tell today is a bad day for you. I'm so sorry. I love you. As predicted, the tears came as she hugged me again. But as I walked away, I thought to myself, maybe I can do this after all. That sweet 16-year-old young woman, less than half my age, found me every Sunday for the rest of that year to give me a hug and ask, how are you? It made such a difference in how I felt about coming to church. The truth is, I started to rely on those hugs. Someone noticed me. Someone knew I was there. Someone cared. End of quote. As with all gifts the Father so willingly offers, seeing deeply requires us to ask Him and then act. Ask to see others as He does, His true sons and daughters with infinite and divine potential. Then act by loving, serving, and affirming their worth and potential as prompted. As this becomes the pattern of our lives, we will find ourselves becoming true followers of Jesus Christ, and others will be able to trust our hearts with theirs. And in this pattern, we will also discover our own true identity and purpose. My friend recalled another experience while sitting in that same empty pew alone, wondering if 20 years of effort to live the gospel in her home was all for naught. She needed more than calming reassurance. She needed vision. She felt a question pierce her heart. Why did you do those things? Did you do them for the reward, the praise of others, or the desired outcome? She hesitated for a moment, searched her heart, and was then able to answer confidently, I did them because I love the Savior and I love his gospel. The Lord opened her eyes to help her see. This simple but powerful change of vision helped her continue to press on with faith in Christ despite her circumstances. I witness that Jesus Christ loves us and can give us eyes to see. Even when it's hard, even when we're tired, even when we're lonely, and even when the outcomes are not as we hoped. Through his grace, he will bless us and increase our capacity. 
Through the power of the Holy Ghost, Christ will enable us to see ourselves and see others as he does. And with his help, we can discern what is most needful. We can begin to see the hand of the Lord working in and through the ordinary details of our lives. We will see deeply. And then in that great day when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That we may have this hope is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. We invite you, wherever you may be, to join the choir in singing, Come Ye Children of the Lord. After the singing, we will be pleased to hear from Elders Quentin L. Cook and Ronald A. Rasband of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. This is the Saturday morning session of the 190th Semi-Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City. Righteousness and unity are profoundly significant. When people love God with all their hearts and righteously strive to become like Him, there is less strife and contention in society. There is more unity. I love a true account that exemplifies this. As a young man not of our faith, General Thomas L. Cain assisted and defended the saints as they were required to flee Nauvoo. He was an advocate for the Church for many years. In 1872, General Cain, his talented wife, Elizabeth Wood Cain, and their two sons traveled from their home in Pennsylvania to Salt Lake City. They accompanied Brigham Young and his associates on a trek south to St. George, Utah. Elizabeth approached her first visit to Utah with reservations about the women. She was surprised by some of the things she learned. For instance, she found that any career by which a woman could earn a living was open to them in Utah. She also found church members were kind and understanding with respect to Native Americans. During the trip, they stayed in Fillmore at the home of Thomas R. and Matilda Robison King. Elizabeth wrote that as Matilda was preparing a meal for President Young and his company, five American Indians came into the room. Although uninvited, it was clear they expected to join the company. Sister King spoke to them in their dialect. They sat down with their blankets with a pleasant look on their faces. Elizabeth asked one of the King children, What did your mother say to those men? Matilda's son reply was, She said, These strangers came first, and I have only cooked enough for them. But your meal is on the fire cooking now, and I will call you as soon as it is ready. Elizabeth asked, Will she really do that, or just give them scraps at the kitchen door? Matilda's son answered, Mother will serve them just as she does you and give them a place at her table. And so she did, and they ate with perfect propriety. Elizabeth explained that this hostess rose 100% in her opinion. Unity is enhanced when people are treated with dignity and respect, even though they are different in outward characteristics. As leaders, we are not under the illusion that in the past all relationships were perfect, all conduct was Christ-like, or all decisions were just. However, our faith teaches that we are all children of our Father in Heaven, and we worship Him and His Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Our desire is that our hearts and minds will be knit in righteousness and unity, and we will be one with them. Righteousness is a broad, comprehensive term, but most certainly includes living God's commandments. It qualifies us for the sacred ordinances that constitute the covenant path and blesses us to have the Spirit give direction to our lives. Being righteous is not dependent on each of us having every blessing in our lives at this time. We may not be married or blessed with children or have other desired blessings now. But the Lord has promised that the righteous who are faithful may dwell with God 
in a state of never-ending happiness. Unity is also a broad, comprehensive term, but most certainly exemplifies the first and second great commandments to love God and love our fellow men. It denotes a Zion people whose hearts and minds are knit together in unity. The context for my message is the contrast and lessons from sacred scriptures. It has been 200 years since the Father and His Son first appeared and commenced the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ in 1820. The account in 4th Nephi in the Book of Mormon includes a similar 200-year period after the Savior appeared and established His Church in ancient America. The historical record we read in 4th Nephi describes a people where there were no envies, strifes, tumults, lines, murders, or any manner of lasciviousness. Because of this righteousness, the record states, surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. With respect to unity, 4th Nephi reads, There was no contention in the land because of the love of God, which did dwell in the hearts of the people. Unfortunately, 4th Nephi then describes a dramatic change that began in the 200th and first year, when iniquity and division destroyed righteousness and unity. The depths of depravity that then occurred were subsequently so evil that ultimately the great prophet Mormon laments to his son Moroni, but, O oh my son, how, to, how can a people like this, whose delight is in so much abomination, how can we expect that God will stay his hand in judgment against us? In this dispensation, although we live in a special time, the world has not been blessed with the righteousness and unity described in 4th Nephi. Indeed, we live in a moment of particularly strong divisions. However, the millions who have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ have committed themselves to achieving both righteousness and unity. We are all aware that we can do better, and that is our challenge in this day. We can be a force to lift and bless society as a whole. At this 200-year hinge point in our church history, let us commit ourselves as members of the Lord's Church to live righteously and be united as never before. President Russell M. Nelson has asked us to demonstrate greater civility, racial and ethnic harmony, and mutual respect. This means loving each other and God and accepting everyone as brothers and sisters and truly being a Zion people. With our all-inclusive doctrine, we can be an oasis of unity and celebrate diversity. Unity and diversity are not opposites. We can achieve greater unity as we foster an atmosphere of inclusion and respect for diversity. During the period I served in the San Francisco, California State Presidency, we had Spanish, Tongan, Samoan, Tagalog, and Mandarin language-speaking congregations. Our English-speaking wards were composed of people from many racial and cultural backgrounds. There was love, righteousness, and unity. Wards and branches in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are determined by geography or language, not by race or culture. Race is not identified on membership records. Early in the Book of Mormon, approximately 500 years before the birth of Christ, 
We are taught the fundamental commandment regarding the relationship between Father and Heaven's children. We are to keep the Lord's commandments, and all are invited to partake of the Lord's goodness. And he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female, and he remembereth the heathen, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. The Savior's ministry and message have consistently declared all races and colors are children of God. We are all brothers and sisters. In our doctrine, we believe that in the host country for the restoration, the United States, the U.S. Constitution and related documents written by imperfect men were inspired by God to bless all people. As we read in the Doctrine and Covenants, these documents were established and should be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh according to just and holy principles. Two of these principles were agency and accountability for one's own sins. The Lord declared, Therefore it is not right that any man should be in bondage one to another. And for this purpose have I established the constitution of this land by the hands of wise men whom I raised up unto this very purpose and redeemed the land by the shedding of blood. This revelation was received in 1833 when the saints in Missouri were suffering great persecution. The heading to Doctrine and Covenants, section 101, reads in part, Mobs had driven them from their homes in Jackson County. Threats of death against members of the church were many. This was a time of tension on several fronts. Many Missourians considered Native Americans a relentless enemy and wanted them removed from the land. In addition, many of the Missouri settlers were slave owners and felt threatened by those who were opposed to slavery. In contrast, our doctrine respected the Native Americans and our desire was to teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. With respect to slavery, our scriptures had made it clear that no man should be in bondage to another. Ultimately, the saints were driven out of Missouri and then forced to move to the West. The saints prospered and found the peace that accompanies righteousness, unity, and living the gospel of Jesus Christ. I rejoice in the Savior's intercessory prayer recorded in the Gospel of John. The Savior acknowledged that the Father had sent him and that he, the Savior, had finished the work he was sent to do. He prayed for his disciples and for those who will believe in Christ, that they may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That they, may, that they may be one in us. Oneness is what Christ prayed for prior to his betrayal and crucifixion. In the first year after restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, recorded in section 38 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord speaks of wars and wickedness and declares, I say unto you, be one, and if you're not one, you're not mine. Our church culture comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The epistle of the apostle Paul to the Romans is profound. The early church in Rome was composed of Jews and Gentiles. These early Jews had a Judaic culture and had won their emancipation and began to multiply and flourish. The Gentiles in Rome had a culture with a significant Hellenistic influence, which the Apostle Paul understood well because of his experiences at Athens and Corinth. Paul sets forth the gospel of Jesus Christ in a comprehensive fashion. He chronicles pertinent aspects of both Judaic and Gentile culture 
that conflict with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He essentially asks each of them to leave behind cultural impediments from their beliefs and culture that are not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul admonishes the Jews and the Gentiles to keep the commandments, love one another, and that righteousness leads to salvation. The culture of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a Gentile culture or a Judaic culture. It is not determined by the color of one's skin or where one lives. While we rejoice in distinctive cultures, we should leave behind aspects of those cultures that conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our members and new converts often come from diverse racial and cultural backgrounds. If we are to follow President Nelson's admonition to gather scattered Israel, we will find we are as different as the Jews and Gentiles were in Paul's time. Yet we can be united in our love of and faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's epistle to the Romans establishes the principle that we follow the culture and doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the model for us even today. The ordinances of the temple unite us in special ways and allow us to be one in every eternally significant way. We honor our pioneer members across the world, not because they were perfect, but because they overcame hardships, made sacrifices, aspired to be Christ-like, and were striving to build faith and be one with the Savior. Their oneness with the Savior made them one with each other. This principle is true for you and me today. The clarion call to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is to strive to be a Zion people who are of one heart and one mind and dwell in righteousness. It is my prayer that we will be righteous and united and completely focused on serving and worshiping our Savior Jesus Christ, of whom I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. As a disciple of our Savior Jesus Christ, I have been looking forward to gathering virtually from all corners of the world for this conference. This has been a most unusual year. For me, it began with an assignment from the First Presidency to dedicate a holy temple to the Lord in Durban, South Africa. I will never forget the grandeur of the building. But more than the setting, I will always treasure the dignity of the people who were so well prepared to enter that sacred edifice. They came ready to partake of one of the crowning blessings of the Restoration, the dedication of a house of the Lord. They came with hearts filled with love for Him and His Atonement. They came filled with thanks to our Father in Heaven for providing sacred ordinances that would lead them to exaltation. They came worthy. Temples, no matter where they are, rise above the ways of the world. Every Latter-day Saint temple in the world 
all 168 of them, stand as testaments to our faith in eternal life and the joy of spending it with our families and our Heavenly Father. Attending the temple increases our understanding of the Godhead and the everlasting gospel and commitment to live and teach truth and our willingness to follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On the outside of every temple in the church are the fitting words, holiness to the Lord. The temple is the Lord's house and a sanctuary from the world. His spirit envelops those who worship within those sacred walls. He sets the standards by which we enter as his guests. My father-in-law, Blaine Twitchell, one of the best men I have ever known, taught me a great lesson. Sister Rasband and I went to visit him when he was nearing the end of his mortal journey. As we entered his room, his bishop was just leaving. As we greeted the bishop, I thought, what a nice bishop. He's here doing his ministering to a faithful member of his ward. I mentioned to Blaine, wasn't that nice of the bishop to come visit? And Blaine looked at me and responded, it was far more than that. I asked for the bishop to come because I wanted my temple recommend interview. I want to go recommended to the Lord. And he did. That phrase, recommended to the Lord, has stayed with me. It has put a whole new perspective on being interviewed regularly by our church leaders. So important is a temple recommend that in the early church until 1891, each temple recommend was endorsed by the president of the church. Whether for youth or adults, your temple recommend interview is not about do's and don'ts. A recommend is not a checklist, a hall pass, or a ticket for special seating. It has a much higher and holier purpose. To qualify for the honor of a temple recommend, you must live in harmony with the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In your interview, you have the opportunity to search your soul about your personal faith in Jesus Christ and His Atonement. You have the blessing to express your testimony of the restored gospel, the willingness to sustain those whom the Lord has called to lead His church. Your faith in the doctrine of the gospel, your fulfillment of family responsibilities, your qualities of honesty, chastity, fidelity, obedience, observance of the word of wisdom, the law of tithing, and the sanctity of the Sabbath day. Those are bedrock principles of a life devoted to Jesus Christ and his work. Your temple recommend reflects a deep spiritual intent that you are striving to live the laws of the Lord and love what he loves, humility, meekness, steadfastness, charity, courage, compassion, forgiveness, and obedience. And you commit yourself to those standards when you sign your name to that sacred document.
Your temple recommend opens the gates of heaven for you and others with rites and ordinances of eternal significance, including baptisms, endowments, marriages, and sealings. To be recommended to the Lord is to be reminded of what is expected of a covenant-keeping Latter-day Saint. My father-in-law, Blaine Twitchell, saw it as invaluable preparation for the day when he would humbly stand before the Lord. Consider when Moses climbed Mount Horeb and the Lord Jehovah appeared to him in a burning bush. God told him, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Putting off our shoes at the door of the temple is letting go of worldly desires or pleasures that distract us from spiritual growth, setting aside those things which sidetrack our precious mortality, rising above contentious behavior, and seeking time to be holy. By divine design, our physical body is a creation of God, a temple for your spirit, and should be treated with reverence. So true are the words of the primary song, My body is a temple which needs the greatest care. When the Lord appeared to the Nephites, he commanded, Be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost that ye may stand spotless before me. What manner of men ought ye to be? asked the Lord, and then answered, even as I am. To be recommended to the Lord, we strive to be like him. I remember hearing President Howard W. Hunter in his first address as the 14th president of the church. He said, it is the deepest desire of my heart to have every member of the church worthy to enter the temple. It would please the Lord if every adult member would be worthy of and carry a current temple recommend. I would add that a limited use recommend will set a clear path for our precious youth. President Nelson recalled President Hunter's words, quote, on that day, June 6, 1994, the temple recommend that we carry became a different object in my wallet. Before that, it was a means to an end. It was the means to allow me to enter a sacred house of the Lord. But after he made that declaration, that became an end in itself. It became my badge of obedience to a prophet of God." End quote. If you have yet to receive a recommend or if your recommend has lapsed, line up at the door of the bishop, just as the early saints lined up at the door of the Nauvoo Temple in 1846. My ancestors were among those faithful. They were abandoning their beautiful city and going west, but they knew that there were sacred experiences awaiting them in the temple. Wrote Sarah Rich from the Rugged Trail in Iowa, if it had not been for the faith and knowledge that was bestowed upon us in that temple, our journey would have been like taking a leap in the dark. That is what we are missing if we are going through this life alone without the inspiration and peace promised in the temple. Begin the process now 
to become recommended to the Lord, that his spirit will be with you in abundance and his standards will bring you peace of conscience. Your youth leaders, elders quorum president, Relief Society president, and ministering brothers and sisters will help you prepare and your bishop or branch president lovingly will guide you. We have been experiencing a time when temples have been closed or limited in use. For President Nelson and those of us who serve at his side, the inspired decision to close the temples was painful and racked with worry. President Nelson found himself asking, what would I say to the prophet Joseph Smith? What would I say to Brigham Young, Wilford, Wilford Woodruff, and the other presidents on up to President Thomas S. Monson? Now we gradually and gratefully are reopening temples for ceilings and endowments on a limited scale. Being worthy to attend the temple, however, has not been suspended. Let me emphasize, whether you have access to a temple or not, you need a current temple recommend to stay firmly on the covenant path. Late last year, Sister Rasband and I were on assignment in New Zealand speaking with a large group of young single adults. They had no easy access to a temple. The one in Hamilton was being renovated, and they were still awaiting the groundbreaking for the temple in Auckland. However, I felt prompted to encourage them to renew or receive temple recommends. Even though they could not present them at the temple, they would presenting themselves before the Lord, pure and prepared to serve him. Being worthy to hold a current temple recommend is both a protection from the adversary because you have made a firm commitment to the Lord about your life and a promise that the Spirit will be with you. We do temple work when we search for our ancestors and submit their names for ordinances. While our temples have been closed, we have still been able to research our families. With the Spirit of the Lord in our hearts, we are by proxy standing in for them to be recommended to the Lord. When I was serving as the executive director of the temple department, I heard President Gordon B. Hinckley refer to this scripture spoken by the Lord about the Nauvoo temple. Let the work of my temple and all the works which I have appointed unto you be continued on and not cease. And let your diligence and your perseverance and patience and your works be redoubled. And you shall in no wise lose your reward saith the Lord of hosts. Our work in the temple is tied to our eternal reward. Recently, we have been put to the test. The Lord has called us to work in the temples with diligence, perseverance, and patience. Being recommended to the Lord requires those qualities. We must be diligent in living the commandments, persevere in our attention to our temple covenants and be grateful for what the Lord continues to teach about them and be patient as we wait for temples to reopen in their fullness. When the Lord calls for us to redouble our efforts, he is asking that we increase in righteousness. 
For example, we may expand our study of the scriptures, our family history research, and our prayers of faith that we may share our love for the Lord's house with those preparing to receive a temple recommend, our family members in particular. I promise you, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, that as you strive to redouble your righteous efforts, you will feel renewed in your devotion to God the Father and Jesus Christ. You will feel an abundance of the Holy Ghost guiding you. You will be grateful for your sacred covenants, and you will feel peace knowing you are recommended to the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. We express gratitude to the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square for the beautiful music. The choir will now favor us with Have I Done Any Good? Our concluding speaker for this session will be President Dallin H. Oaks, first counselor in the First Presidency. Following his remarks, the choir will close this meeting by singing Love One Another. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Juan A. Uceda of the Seventy.
The Lord's teachings are for eternity and for all of God's children. In this message, I will give some examples from the United States, but the principles I teach are applicable everywhere. We live in a time of anger and hatred in political relationships and policies. We felt it this summer where some went beyond peaceful protests and engaged in destructive behavior. We feel it in some current campaigns for public offices. Unfortunately, some of this has even spilled over into political statements and unkind references in our church meetings. In a democratic government, we will always have differences over proposed candidates and policies. However, as followers of Christ, we must forego the anger and hatred with which political choices are debated or denounced in many settings. Here's one of our Savior's teachings, probably well known but rarely practiced. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. For generations, Jews had been taught to hate their enemies, and they were then suffering under the domination and cruelties of Roman occupation. Yet, Jesus taught them, love your enemies and do good to them that despitefully use you. What revolutionary teachings for personal and political relationships. But that is still what our Savior commands. In the Book of Mormon we read, For verily, verily, I say unto you, He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger, one with another. Loving our enemies and our adversaries is not easy. Most of us have not reached that stage of love and forgiveness, President Hinckley observed, adding, it requires a self-discipline almost greater than we are capable of. But it must be essential, for it is part of the Savior's two great commandments, to love the Lord thy God and to love thy neighbor as thyself. And it must be possible, for he also taught, ask and it shall be given you, Seek, and ye shall find. How do we keep these divine commandments in a world where we are also subject to the laws of man? Fortunately, we have the Savior's own example of how to balance his eternal laws with the practicalities of man-made laws. When adversaries sought to trap him with a question about whether Jews should pay taxes to Rome... He pointed to the image of Caesar on their coins and declared, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. So we are to follow the laws of men, render unto Caesar 
to live peacefully under civil authority, and we follow the laws of God toward our eternal destination. But how do we do this? Especially, how do we learn to love our adversaries and our enemies? The Savior's teaching not to contend with anger is a good first step. The devil is the father of contention, and it is he who tempts men to contend with anger. He promotes enmity and hateful relationships among individuals and within groups. President Thomas F. Monson taught that anger is Satan's tool, for to be angry is to yield to the influence of Satan. No one can make us angry. It is our choice, end of quote. Anger is the way to division and enmity. We move toward loving our adversaries when we avoid anger and hostility toward those with whom we disagree. It also helps if we are even willing to learn from them. Among other ways to develop the power to love others is the simple method described in a long-ago musical. When we are trying to understand and relate to people of a different culture, we should try getting to know them. In countless circumstances, strangers, suspicion, or even hostility give way to friendship or even love when personal contacts produce understanding and mutual respect. An even greater help in learning to love our adversaries and our enemies is to seek to understand the power of love. Here are three of many prophetic teachings about this. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that it is a time-honored adage that love begets love. Let us pour forth love, show forth our kindness unto all mankind, end of quote. President Howard W. Hunter taught, quote, The world in which we live would benefit greatly if men and women everywhere would exercise the pure love of Christ which is kind, meek, and lowly. It is without envy or pride. It seeks nothing in return. It has no place for bigotry, hatred, or violence. It encourages diverse people to live together in Christian love, regardless of religious belief, race, nationality, financial standing, education, or culture. End of quote. And President Russell M. Nelson has urged us to, quote, expand our circle of love to embrace the whole human family, end of quote. An essential part of loving our enemies is to render unto Caesar by keeping the laws of our various countries. Though Jesus' teachings were revolutionary, he did not teach revolution or law-breaking. He taught a better way. Modern revelation teaches the same, quote, Let no man break the laws of the land, for he that keepeth the laws of God hath no need to break the laws of the land. Wherefore, be subject to the powers that be, end of quote. And our article of faith, written by the prophet Joseph Smith, 
after the early saints had suffered severe persecution from Missouri officials, declares, quote, We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honor, honoring, and sustaining the law, end of quote. This does not mean that we agree with all that is done with the force of law. It means that we obey the current law and use peaceful means to change it. It also means that we peacefully accept the results of elections. We will not participate in the violence threatened by those disappointed with the outcome. In a democratic society, we always have the opportunity and the duty to persist peacefully until the next election. The Savior's teaching to love our enemies is based on the reality that all mortals are beloved children of God. That eternal principle and some basic principles of law were tested in the recent protests in many American cities. At one extreme, some seem to have forgotten that the First Amendment to the United States Constitution guarantees the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for the redress of grievances. That is the authorized way to raise public awareness and to focus on injustices in the content or administration of the laws. And there have been injustices in public actions and in our personal attitudes. We have had racism and related grievances. In a persuasive personal essay, the Reverend Teresa A. Deer of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People has reminded us that, quote, racism thrives on hatred, oppression, passivity, indifference, and silence, end of quote. As citizens and as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we must do better to help root out racism. At the other extreme, a minority of participants and supporters of these protests and the illegal acts that followed them seem to have forgotten that the protests protected by the Constitution are peaceful protests. Protesters have no right to destroy, deface, or steal property or to undermine the government's legitimate police powers. The Constitution and laws contain no invitation to revolution or anarchy. All of us, police, protesters, supporters, and spectators, should understand the limits of our rights and the importance of our duties to stay within the boundaries of existing law. Abraham Lincoln was right when he said, there is no grievance that is a fit object of redress by mob law. Redress of grievances by mobs is redress by illegal means. That is anarchy a condition that has no effective governance and no formal police, which undermines rather than protects individual rights. One reason the recent protests in the United States were shocking to so many 
was that the hostilities and illegalities felt among different ethnicities in other nations should not be felt in the United States. This country should be better in eliminating racism, not only against black Americans, who were most visible in the recent protests, but also against Latinos, Asians, and other groups. This nation's history of racism is not a happy one, and we must do better. The United States was founded by immigrants of different nationalities and different ethnicities. Its unifying purpose was not to establish a particular religion or to perpetuate any of the diverse cultures or tribal loyalties of the old countries. Our founding generation sought to be unified by a new constitution and laws. That is not to say that our unifying documents or the then current understanding of their meanings were perfect. The history of the first two centuries of the United States showed the need for many refinements, such as voting rights for women and, particularly, the abolition of slavery, including laws to assure that those who had been enslaved would have all the conditions of freedom. Two Yale University scholars recently reminded us, quote, for all its flaws, the United States is uniquely equipped to unite a diverse and divided society. Its citizens don't have to choose between a national identity and multiculturalism. Americans can have both. But the key is constitutional patriotism. We have to remind you remain united by and through the Constitution regardless of our ideological disagreements, end of quote. Many years ago, a British foreign secretary gave this great counsel in a debate in the House of Commons. Quote, we have no eternal allies and we have no perpetual enemies. Our interests are eternal and perpetual. And these interests, it is our duty to follow, end of quote. That is a good secular reason for following eternal and perpetual interests in political matters. In addition, the doctrine of the Lord's Church teaches us another eternal interest to guide us. The teachings of our Savior, who inspired the Constitution of the United States, and the basic laws of many of our countries. Loyalty to established law instead of temporary allies is the best way to love our adversaries and our enemies as we seek unity in diversity. Knowing that we are all children of God gives us a divine vision of the worth of all others and the will and ability to rise above prejudice and racism. As I've lived for many years in different places in this nation, the Lord has taught me that it is possible to obey and seek to improve our nation's laws and also to love our adversaries and our enemies. While not easy, it is possible with the help of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gave this command to love, and he promises his help as we seek to obey it. I testify that we are loved and will be helped 
by our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 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 of this wonderful session of General Conference. We are here to express the gratitude for thy love and mercy, for thy son, for his life, his teachings, his wonderful love for us, his atoning sacrifice, and his resurrection. 
We especially pray today for the youth and the children so that they may be able to see and feel within them the beautiful, the sweet truths of the restored gospel. We pray, Father, once again for all those who are sick and afflicted in, in any manner. Thy beloved Son declared to the Nephites of old that he is the light and the life of the world. And so we pray that in our homes and communities we may be able to receive and have that light that comes from him. We pray for our missionaries and members all over the world, Father. And also pray that we may be shepherds to all those who are in need. And pray so very humbly in the name of thy beloved Son, even Jesus Christ. Amen. of the Saturday morning session of the 190th Semi-Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music was provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited.